Welcome to the Progress Texas Happy Hour. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Progress Texas Happy Hour. My name is Safik Alawali. I'm the Digital Director of Progress Texas, and I'm joined by President Ed Espinoza, Advocacy Director Diana Gomez, and Communications Director Wesley Story. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. You know, why is it important that we have women running statewide in 2022 and who those women could be? The impact of rapid growth of the Latinx community here in Texas, especially when it comes to redistricting. And then, as always, we got to talk about Abbott and Paxton and coronavirus. This time, specifically, their assault on schools to find their mask mandate banned. Uh, ban, not banned. That'd be cool to have a band. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but before we dive in, it is a happy hour. So I got myself a Blue Moon, which I drank since college. It's a family favorite. What are y'all drinking? What are you drinking, Wesley? I am drinking a Trulies raspberry lime flavored. I'm a little nervous because I haven't eaten anything today. So let's hope this doesn't go terribly wrong. <laughs> you might get too happy. Right. What about you, Diana? Um, also a truly different flavor. <laughs> Uh, black cherry, um, and I've had some nuts and a coffee. So, <laughs> do you guys call each other before we do these? Because you both had white wine last week. We actually, we actually did have our check in right before this, and both said we were going to be drinking truly. <laughs> <laughs> last time was a coincidence, though. Yeah, truly. If you're listening to this, we would love your sponsorship. Maybe. <laughs> yes, we would absolutely love your. <laughs> we might want to look at your overall donor history beforehand, but in theory, in general, we would like your sponsorship. I am drinking uh, something called bitters and soda which is literally just bitters and soda. And the ironic thing here is that I could make this. It's not very hard to make. You take soda and some bitters, and then you mix them together. It's non-alcoholic. I don't know why I'm always the only dude here not drinking when I, I probably want it the most, but <laughs> I, don't, I don't have it today. And what are bitters? I hear that term all the time. I just don't know what it is. You know, my better half explained it to me the other day, and I, I don't remember. Uh, I think it's a reduction. It's like, um, so they're aromatic things. Um, I don't know. I was going to look for something on the label here. But they're, they're just like uh, accents that kind of bring out the the, uh, uh, the the flavors of drinks. They're like the essential oils of drinks. I don't know, man. Can we cut this out of the recording? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, and actually, you know, speaking of your better half... Um, the 2020 elections are just around the corner. And, uh, <laughs> That's a great transition. <laughs> I've been taking classes, okay? Um, so they're just around the yeah. corner. And the only people we hear about running statewide for Democrats and Republicans, actually, are all men. But we should have some more women representation at statewide. Ed, you know, you, you were talking about this earlier this week. Who are some of the people and what are some of the things we want to see going into 2022? So, subject number one, the governor's race, right? Let's let's dive in. Um, governor. We have heard, let, let's, first of all, let's start with the whole field, and then let's work our way into what women may be running for office statewide. So there are seven offices that are up for elect statewide election in Texas. We have one less than we normally do because there's normally a U.S. Senate race on the ballot. We don't have that this time because of the way the stars have aligned. So... Everything is about the governor's race, and then the other six offices are lieutenant governor, attorney general, uh, agriculture commissioner, land commissioner, railroad commissioner, and then comptroller. There we go. It's the three top, the three commissioners, and then comptroller. 
so far, uh, Democrats do not have a candidate for governor. I take it back. There is one person who has declared for governor who ran for lieutenant governor uh, four years ago. Uh, did not have a, a strong campaign then. I don't expect the campaign doesn't look any different now than it did then. Uh, we will have some names on the ballot, but will we have some competitive names? That's what we're waiting to see. The big name that everybody is waiting on is Beto O'Rourke. We're all waiting on Beto right now. Will he or won't he? And in the calls that I have made over the past week, uh, people that I have talked to, by the way, those of you listening, if you want to know what Progress Texas does all week, we're constantly working with the media, working with people at the legislature, talking to other groups that, are, that work in politics professionally to make sure that we have the right media and messaging for our movement. One of those things we talk about is the governor's race. It lo- sounds like Beto O'Rourke may be close to making a decision and announcing that either last week, sometimes here at the end of September or beginning of October. So it's, it's coming soon. So the question is, what does the rest of the ballot look like? We have one, potentially two people running for lieutenant governor. Mike Collier has been in the race for lieutenant governor for a while. Matthew Dowd, who is a commentator formerly with ABC and now does some work with MSNBC, may also be jumping into the race. We have some people running for attorney general whose names I can't remember right off the top of my head. I think Lee Merritt is one out of Houston. Uh, another guy uh, originally out of Galveston, I believe his last name is Jaworski. Uh, he is looking at attorney general as well. There's one thing missing in all of these names. You may have noticed I said the word he a lot. I use the pronoun he and not she because so far no Democratic women have stepped forward to announce that they are running. Now, I have heard rumors from some people who may be thinking about it, but nobody has publicly come out and stated that they're looking at any of these offices, whether it's those three that I mentioned or any of the others that are down ticket. That is an issue for Democrats. Democrats, Texas Democrats, have a woman candidate problem right now, and it's a problem that we need to take seriously because we do have a talented bench. Whether you're looking at county judges around the state, Lena Hidalgo, of course, we're big fans of here in in, uh, Progress Texas, members of the legislature, whether that be uh, Donna Howard or Gina Hinojosa here from Austin, but also we've got a lot of stars up in the Dallas area and the Houston area who are great. Members of Congress, Sylvia Garcia, who served in the state Senate, other members of the state Senate, I could go on. The point is, is that we don't have a lot of women, any yet, who have formally declared for these offices. And if we have a March primary, it's up in the air because we don't know what the redistricting lawsuits will look like. But if the primary happens in March, filing for these offices, it's going to start in November and close in December. It's coming up sooner than you might think. I said a lot there, so I know that there's, that's a lot to take in, but it, it's, a, it's a lot for the whole state to take in, the, the situation is. I was just going to say, Ed, I've also heard Lizzie, Lizzie Fletcher's name thrown around a couple of times, too, for a potential candidate. She's one of our congresswomen. I have a few questions for you, though. My first question is, it seems like in 2018 we had a similar problem. One, the first problem being why do Democrats, why do progressives wait so long to announce their candidacy? Why does it feel like pulling teeth to convince people <laughs> to run in our state? Um, do you have any knowledge as to why that is? I, 
Yeah, so in the last three election cycles, our candidates have actually filed later than right now. Like, If somebody declared today, it would still be earlier than the last three election cycles. What's different in 2022 is the stakes are so high and Governor Abbott is sitting on so much money in his bank account that we need a longer runway for a campaign in order to get to election day, which is barely a year away at this point. But uh, you're right. We've been through this before, and I think that people get intimidated by the fact that Texas is a big state and it's an expensive state, which is true. But what I like to remind people is that even Beto O'Rourke was not Beto O'Rourke when he jumped into this race. And what I mean by that was that the candidate he was when he jumped in was not the financial juggernaut that he is today. Like, he went out and made that happen. So did Elizabeth Warren when she ran for U.S. Senate. So did... uh, Uh, candidates like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So did other candidates here around Texas have done the same thing. So I think that there are models worth replicating, but admittedly, it's a big ask for somebody to put their name on the line and and put themselves out there for a year. But we're asking anyway, please run. (laughs) And another thing I'd argue is there's never been a better time to run as a Democrat or as a progressive against the Republicans in our state right now, just because they continue to screw up over and over and over again. And I think people are done with it. So that's also something to keep in mind. <laughs> I think screw up is very generous. They're doing it on purpose, I <laughs> well, think. Very it's not true. Screw up. Um, but actually, Ed, to your point, I have a question based off of what Melanie Catter on Facebook is saying. She's saying we should have more young people running. What are some of the barriers that prevent women or people of color or young you know, millennials, Gen Z from running for office, do you think? So I think, first of all, I agree. I would actually love to see members of city councils run for statewide office, which I realize is a huge leap, but cities have suffered so much under this particular state uh, uh, regime, leadership, whatever you want to call it, that I think they have a strong case to make. But so often is the problem, especially with the Texas legislature, is that it's not that they can't afford to run, although that is an issue, but for a lot of these offices, they can't afford to win. Because when you get there, it's not a full-time paying job and you have to balance it with the job you've got. Now, obviously, that's different statewide. And I think that if people were willing to uh, make the leap to statewide office, that we should look at some unconventional candidates like city council candidates or maybe freshman legislators or you know, people who are different than what we're seeing before and are from different backgrounds. I, what we've been doing before wasn't working. Should we try something different now? I think young people have a lot to say. I think it's funny. I heard this statistic uh, many, many years ago, um, and it's with any job. Usually there's like a list of like qualifications to apply for a job. And statistically, when you compare like men and women, women are trying to see if they qualify for maybe at least 80 percent of these qualifications before they decide to even apply for a job. Whereas men might meet one or two of the qualifications. They're like, boom, I'm applying for this job. Let's go get it. (laughs) Um, And so you know, I, I think hearing that really inspired me to think, you know, to, to try out for it, uh, to feel like I'm I'm a good fit for any job. And I think for the job of governor or lieutenant governor, especially, Ed, you mentioned that you'd heard of, you know, some women who were thinking of running just like I'm, I know you're all watching this right now and you'll, you'll watch it later. <laughs> any woman who's thinking of running, probably. I just want to push you to just like just make that leap. This has been a heck of a year. You know, why not? You know, like, why not take take that chance? That's right. I mean, why not, right? Like, 
Think of some of the names that have run in years past, people I have talked to or heard about recently running. Uh, Amanda Edwards out of Houston, former city council member, African-American, young lawyer who has uh, quite accomplished, uh, very impressive. I would love to see her name on a ticket again soon. She ran for U.S. Senate in uh, 2020, did not make it out of the primary, but it was her first time running statewide. Uh, Krista Castaneda, who was our nominee for Railroad Commissioner, the Democratic nominee for Railroad Commissioner in 2020. Of course, would love to see her. I talked to Kim Olson, the nominee for Ag Commissioner and former congressional candidate a couple days ago. Talked to her about something else and I said, hey, by the way, since I have you on the phone, if you're not doing anything next year, I'd love to see you run for office. (laughs) But uh, those are just some of the names, but we have so many. I I could keep naming people who I think would be great running statewide or for any other office. Um, and hopefully if we can get the conversation going, uh, the conversation will continue and transpire into action with people actually uh, running. You know, we just, we, we've just been talking about uh, how we're not seeing a ton of women running statewide. Another group that we, sh- we, would, we would hope to see more of running is the Latinx population. Diana, earlier this week you were telling me about what some of the new census data is telling us and the impact it'll have. Do you want to dive into that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's actually a, a piece that I'd written um, about this, uh, specifically on the impact that redistricting has um, on the Latino community. Uh, I thought it was really important to talk about this, especially since uh, yesterday was the start of Hispanic Heritage Month. It runs from the 15th of September to the 15th of October, I believe. Um, And it's always a great time to encourage more people to run. Uh, Women, uh, folks in the Latinx community, why not try to push that through right now, especially with those census numbers numbers that you mentioned, Sotvik. Some of those numbers are that Latino Texans are a half of a percentage point away from becoming Texas's largest demographic group. That is huge. And if you looked around to see if that number uh, that we're so close to was represented in our elected offices, you would see that that is not the case. Um, and so we need more uh, people of color in general um, uh, running for office in Texas. You know, Texas has the largest uh, black population of any state uh, in the country as well. Uh, and, and so, you know, any uh, POC folks would, would be great, uh, but especially Latinos. Um, to reflect that population here in Texas. Another thing too is because of our census numbers, we're going to gain two whole congressional districts. And that is amazing. That means we're gonna be represented a lot more than we have been in the past. And it's really important that those two seats uh, be honestly highly considered for Latino seats um, since we're just that you know few percentage point away. Um, but wanted to make that connection with redistricting too because you know one of the ways that Republicans try to stay in control and have, you know, succeeded in doing so is to gerrymander and, you know, cut up different portions of Texas for their advantage, often leaving a lot of Latinos unrepresented. After the Progress Texas Happy Hour, be sure and pop over to ProgressTexas.org and check out all our great merch. Perfect for letting the world know that you're on the side of progress in Texas, too. Cool t-shirts and beautiful shades of blue. An awesome pride pack. Y'all means all. Buttons, stickers, can coolers, and more. Show your pride in progress at our web store at progresstexas.org. You know, Diana, you said we're that our community is a half a percentage away from being the majority in this state. Let me ask you this. What if the state of Texas had 
fully funded or even adequately funded a census count. Oh, God. What do you think that number would look like today? Oh, you know, that, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, even though we, only, we, we gained two seats, that should have been more. And, you know, to, to bring back folks back in time, which we don't want to go back in time when talking about the pandemic, but I'll do it real quick. Let it be, you know, not too, uh, too painful. But uh, Trump was president. And when it came to the census, he had, had threatened to put a citizenship question on there. And so that left a lot of folks, um, not all immigrants are, are Latino, but a whole bunch of them are here in Texas. And those that fell into, you know, that Venn diagram of being Latino and being maybe undocumented, you know, there's a huge undercount in that area. And so those projections, while they're so high, um, are honestly not it. And I think you're right, Ed. It's very quite likely that we are that majority now here in Texas because there there was that undercount. And I, obviously that was purposeful too, right? Like, I think re- Republicans are very scared. They don't like the idea of a diverse group of Texans being the majority in our state. And so that's why they didn't invest in the census. And that's why we can very much expect on Monday as the redistricting session takes place that they're going to try to gerrymander the lines. There there are two types of gerrymandering, partisan gerrymandering and racial gerrymandering. And it's kind of hard to tell the difference. One of them, the Supreme Court has allowed to be constitutional. The other racial gerrymandering is considered unconstitutional. And I think that a lot of the times Republicans in Texas are able to get away with that racial gerrymandering because they claim that it's partisan gerrymandering. Can you talk a little bit more about what we can expect to see in the coming weeks in the ledge, Diana? Yeah, definitely. So we are in, if y'all can believe it, um, because it seems like the longest legislative session of all time. And it was my first year (laughs) working at the state level, what a, oh my gosh, Um, the biggest crash course of all time. But anyways, it is the third special session that begins Monday, September 20th, which will be my fourth session in one year. Um, It's been exhausting. I'm like memorizing all the places to eat around the Capitol now and all the places to park and like, you know, where to have a picnic outside, all those things. Um, But but anyways, um, yeah, so it starts on um, on Monday, and this is one of the special uh, sessions that is extra special uh, than the other ones because we have been waiting for those census results in order to start this redistricting process. This will be the session of redistricting. That is the, the main stage this time. Um, we're going to be expecting, I, I believe it might be this weekend, that's the last opportunity for folks to, to go if they want to, uh, to testify in redistricting hearings. It's really important for folks to be able to, to do that if they want to, because a lot of this testimony, especially if uh, your testimony or your comments are about how harmful gerrymandering is, if it's harmful to your specific community, maybe Latino community or other uh, people of color community, it can be used in future uh, litigation that will go into filing any lawsuits that uh, go against these t- what will be terrible redrawings um, of our state. And uh, it's really important to keep an eye on what these drawings are going to look like to keep these legislators accountable because it's going to be Republicans who are using what I refer to as these uh, wild racist scissors to just cut everything to, to look all you know wobbly and, and weird. It's why we have districts that go from the Rio Grande Valley to Central Texas, from Austin all the way to Houston. 
They look wonky, they look weird, they don't make sense. They're gonna try to do it again and it's really important to keep an eye on them. And if you follow us here at Progress Texas, we'll let you know everything that's going on during this session. Yeah, just to underscore how crazy these districts are, at Progress we've talked about doing a gerrymander 5K. Um, And by running 5K, Ed, how many different districts would we have passed through? Isn't it like four or five? So in Austin, there's uh, just in the immediate vicinity from where I live, there is one stretch of the Town Lake Trail that goes through three congressional districts in in 5K, five kilometers. It's a little more than 3.1 miles. There is a stretch in downtown Austin where you can go between three bars in a half mile and go through three districts. You don't even need a scooter for that one. Uh, you go through North Austin. I know that when Justin Nelson was running for Attorney General last uh, uh, last cycle, two cycles ago, that he did something called Walk the Lines, where it was like a bar crawl between uh, congressional districts. I want to say he touched on three or four congressional districts, but creative map drawing creates a state that looks like a jigsaw puzzle, and you know, just there are not a whole lot of states that that do it like Texas. I really want to echo something that Diana mentioned a minute ago. You know, I think a lot of folks, they feel like their testimony isn't important. We know these maps are going to be bad. So let's just be honest. We know that they're going to draw terrible maps. But like Diana said, that testimony can be used in future litigation. And we've seen success in the courts when it comes to suing Texas for these maps. So nine times in the past decade, maps have been found intentionally discriminatory and the state has been forced to change the maps from different courts, um, federal courts and potentially state courts. And so that testimony is important, even if you don't think, oh, it's going to change the legislator's mind, it could change the courts. And that's what's most important, because we know that there's going to be litigation surrounding this for the next (coughs) 10 years. And I just wanted to also uh, repeat one one final thing is that uh, Republicans have have done this. They've sliced and diced Texas to look super wonky because they know about the power that we have in our vote. It's why they tried so hard to pass that voter suppression bill, um, you know, after that that last session. And we have power, especially among Latino voters. We turned out in record numbers during that last election cycle. And it's why they were pushing for that voter suppression bill, why they want to redraw that those maps to look even wonkier than they did before. They're going to get creative. I'm interested in seeing how creative they get with these maps, what works of art, racist art they come up with. Um, <laughs> and we should put them in like a museum or something like that. Um, But again, it's because of our power. And no matter what, they can't stop us from testifying and they can't stop us from no matter what roadblocks they put up from still turning out to vote. I want to offer a little advice on this. If you ever do testify at a gerrymandering, uh, at a a redistricting commission, or if you're calling your legislator's office, uh, if you've looked at the maps and you see the injustices on the maps, one of the things that can help is talking about specifically what streets and what neighborhoods are cut out and why or how they're divided. And the reason I mention is, is that's the kind of thing that can be used in a court case. So the Brennan Center just put something out, some guidance out on this in the past week. Um, I was trying to look for a link just now to, to, to share, but I couldn't find it. But it's uh, uh, if you could say something like, look, I live in a neighborhood and they cut it right in half. So while I'll be advocating for something, my neighbor's won't be able to call the same office to advocate for it. Like you should be able to pool your strength and advocate together. Talking about the specific roads and neighborhoods that are misplaced 
or even whole cities that are misplaced in a congressional district or a state ledge district, I think is an important way to voice your opinion on the injustices that you could see in any of these maps. Definitely. And that link, actually, for those tips from the Brennan Center is in that article on Latinos and redistricting. There you go. Which is in the comments. Um, so when we're talking about testimony, it's like that's a good way to use the courts to protect people's rights. Uh, unfortunately, right now, and Wesley, I know you've been writing about this, the courts are being used to put kids in danger. Why is that? And how is that happening? And specifically, who's doing it? I just want to give a shout out to Sotvik for these segues because they've been <laughs> really on point throughout this entire podcast. Um, I want to start a little bit, not from the very beginning, but a few months back, some of you may remember back in May, Governor Abbott issued an executive order that banned government entities. So that includes school districts, counties, localities from implementing mask mandates. And so... And he used an executive order, which is a privilege granted to him under his executive authorities whenever he's claiming using his emergency powers. So he used an emergency power to basically prevent cities from responding to an emergency, which makes absolutely I mean, it's just a twisted way to prevent any action on COVID. And so with back to school beginning and a lot of school districts knowing that their students would be at risk, many of them chose to defy this order and instead listen to medical experts who have been saying that masks saves lives. We know that masks save lives. Um, I mean, it was, a, in my opinion, an easy choice. It's a choice between ch saving children's lives or listening to a governor who has failed our state time and time again. And so as the classes resumed, we've seen here in Texas that students, children across the state are a record number of kids have contracted COVID-19 and ICUs are even filling up. And I think this is really important because that's an issue that doesn't just impact people with COVID. This surge in cases impacts anybody who may need medical care for whatever reason. You could be turned away if you're going to the hospital if it's at capacity. And so everybody should care about this problem. It truly is a healthcare emergency and a healthcare crisis in Texas. But this past weekend, which was what Sotvik was hinting at, this past weekend we found out that the notorious indicted Attorney General Ken Paxton filed suit against six of these school districts to try to get them to overturn their mask mandates. Um, I'll really quickly also add that 85 school districts across Texas are requiring masks, so it's not really clear why Paxton chose these six districts. It could be that he thinks the courts will be more friendly. It could be that they're liberal cities that he's targeting specifically just to make a case and a point. Um, but whatever you think the reason may be, you can bet that it doesn't have anything to do with health care or saving lives. You know, um, another uh, another point to this is that I was on the air. So one of the other things we do at Progress Texas, we work with TV stations and um, I was on the air with James Dickey, former state chair of the Republican Party. And his solution to masks in schools, to not having masks in schools, is that we need to invest in ventilation infrastructure at all of our schools in order to, to improve the air quality in these places. And I'm like, but masks are free. <laughs> like we just, you put them, they're immediate. We put them on. So I don't know why they're so adamantly opposed to masks 
that they're willing to go so far out of their way to to come up with these answers to these to to, to this issue. Don't we have like an ex-governor who's making some money out of some of these ventilation systems? Yeah, he was Rick on Perry's Dance. Yeah. Rick, Rick Perry. Perry has his hands in some stuff. Yeah. I was like, is he is he also an investor in Rick Perry's uh, school ventilation pyramid scheme or something like that? <laughs> it's just wild to me that he thinks that's a more reasonable solution to than just getting people to wear masks, which we know is evidence backed. We know that it works, um, and it really. I talk a little bit about this in the piece that I wrote this week, but a lot the talking points from the other side, Republicans have argued, you know, this is a freedom issue. It is not a freedom issue. This is about appealing to this far right extremist base that they whose votes that they want. And the reason that I know it's not a freedom issue is because if they really cared about our freedom, then they'd care about our freedom from this disease. They care about us not having to put ourselves at risk. And people, you know, this is a true constitutional crisis because if I die from COVID because people decided that it was more important that they were comfortable, more important that they didn't want to wear a mask, then that's messing with my right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I can't pursue happiness if I'm dead. So (laughs) I think that that whole whole argument just is not a sustainable argument, and it it doesn't really make much sense. It doesn't make any sense. They're playing to the lowest common denominator there. They're just trying to use a catchphrase in the form of a word called freedom, thinking that people will have some sort of emotional response to the word freedom. But it makes no sense when you think that we don't have the freedom from seatbelts when we drive. We don't have the freedom from having car insurance. We're required to have car insurance, which is a good thing. You should. Uh, in schools, you don't have a free. You don't have freedom from dress codes. We mandate dress codes. So there's so many things that are wrong with this that it's easy to poke holes in it. But that doesn't stop them from trying to keep pushing that issue. I saw a really good comparison that discussed, you know, Texans really love football. Um, We're not complaining about the fact that football players are required to wear masks when they play football to protect themselves. This is the same exact thing. It's actually a penalty if you grab the face mask. I I also want to point out that this isn't just about keeping kids safe. So I have a personal experience where uh, an uncle of mine passed away from COVID. And the way he got it is that his home health aid nurse got COVID from her son who was in school. So we don't want our kids to get sick, but the ki- but children can also carry it then to their parent who then carries it to somebody else. Um, and so it's not like a one, like healthcare is a system. It's a community-based thing. It's not just about one individual. And so this is like, you know, it's just so irresponsible to try and prevent these really common sense, easy uh, precautions from happening. I think that's such a good point, Sotvik. It's the family members back at home are also at risk. The teachers are incredibly at risk. And we know that we put a lot of weight on our teachers. Teachers are forced here in Texas to wear so many different hats. And this is just another hat, another burden that we're placing on them too. When we have the tools and we have the science to know better and to do better. And what's interesting is I've heard from a lot of friends that work with young kids. Um, My sister actually uh, teaches after school, um, you know, tiny kids at an elementary school and then also high school kids. And she tells me about some of the first and second graders she works with. And she said, they never complain about their masks. You just tell them once and they keep it on the whole time. It's as if it's not an issue. Which it's not. (laughs) 
<laughs> I really think that we don't give kids enough credit. They're super adaptable. Um, kids can figure stuff out on their own and kids, if you throw something at them, they'll adapt, they'll learn. And this is one of those examples. I also have pretty young cousins in my family and they know every time they get out of the car when we go to a restaurant or when we go somewhere, they just put on their mask and they think nothing of it. And I think that that's a really good point, Diana, is that these are this is a fight with the parents and folks above students. But when you think about it, the students themselves, I don't really think have any kind of problem with wearing the masks. The best thing I can say in all of this is that the school districts have been really good at standing up to the, to the governor and just saying, rejecting his uh, his mandate and saying, no, we, your mandate for not having, what was it, his ban, sorry, his ban on mandates and them standing up to him and saying, no, we're going to do it anyway. Yeah, I am incredibly proud of the districts who have taken a stance. And I think that, you know, they do put a lot on the line because their funding has been threatened. Um, having to go to court over this issue is difficult in itself. And then also having to deal with potentially parents um, who are against the mask mandates. So I'm proud of the schools who are standing up for it, and I hope that more will join in. So this is a, a happy hour, and we kind of drifted away from that uh, because the world is crazy. But there is a moment of zen I'd like to leave some of y'all with. Uh, earlier today, Ed told us about a new poll that came out uh, from oh, Texas 236, 2036. And, you know, everything seems like we're so divided, right? Masks, vaccines, redistricting, an upcoming election. But there is one thing that almost every Texan agrees on. Yeah. That the state leaders are driving us in the wrong direction. 92 percent of Texans. <laughs> like, that's, it's amazing. Uh, and it gives me a little bit of hope. There is unity in how, in our displeasure with the state of Texas right now. <laughs> Everyone's mad. Everyone's angry. <laughs> but at the same person. Misery loves company, man. Misery is at 92% right now. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Well, on that, that really kind of happy note. <laughs> you're not alone. Just message. You're not alone. Virtual hug. Um, Wesley, Diana, Ed, thanks as always for lending your expertise. To everyone watching right now, uh, thanks for joining us. Head over to progresstexas.org to follow us on social media and subscribe to our email list. If you're listening on a podcast, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. We will see you soon. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Bye, y'all. The Progress Texas Happy Hour is a production of Progress Texas, a rapid response media organization promoting progressive messages and actions. Find us online at progresstexas.org and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. The podcast is produced by me, Chris Mosier, with music by Walker Lukens. Please subscribe and share, and thanks so much for listening. See you again next week.